0: Hi, everyone. I'm Jack Cush. Welcome to the Miracle Larry podcast, where I'm joined by best friend Larry Kelly. And today we have a special guest. Larry, why don't you introduce our guest? Hi, Jack. How are you? Excellent. I'm excited about today, but
1: I'm a little tired, as you well know. We had a very wild weekend. We had a very wild weekend, Jack.
0: Don't tell the audience about... All right, go ahead.
1: <laughs> but I'm really excited about today. This... Uh, what. We- Wait, we're sort of copying from Jason Bateman's podcast. And we have surprise guests. And today we have uh, <laughs> Jessica Montanaro. And uh Jessica is our podcast today is gonna be we, we take different angles on um COVID, and this is all gonna be about the nurses' experience. And uh that there's no one better to talk about the nurses than Jessica. Um she's been doing it for a while. Um um she's um i i to tell you how long she's been a nurse i don't know specifically other what i can repeat from newspaper articles and stuff, but i'll let her tell you that but jessica was my admitting nurse um and uh, very influential in covid in nursing and uh, uh big with the union and nurses rights and uh, and and what the nurses went through during COVID. And uh, so, Jessica, we're going to throw questions at you, and you just go. And but this is Jessica Montanaro.
2: Hi.
0: Jessica, <laughs> we're delighted to have you here. I I met Jessica and had a relationship with Jessica over the phone just by calling the hospital when Larry was in there, and uh, and and she was a standout to talk to, and even <laughs> now a greater standout to meet and know so Jessica Larry and I in past episodes have talked about um you know how we led up to COVID and whatnot you know the for me the um the uh you know it was like oh no moment when he's admitted the oh oh my god no was when he was in the ICU and you admitted him to the ICU but before you admitted him to the ICU what was going on in your life you know um, was life smooth and easy and nothing going on? Or when did you know that COVID was happening?
2: Um, you mean in my personal life or in the medical world?
0: Yeah. I mean, your personal life and what you bring to work. I mean, uh, um,
2: so, you know, um, I have, Larry was our second COVID patient in the ICU. He was our second COVID, my first admission, uh, our second COVID patient. Um, but just prior to that, obviously it was on the news and, and we were all hearing about it. Um, it, it, affected me a little differently because my parents were in Italy and Italy was shutting down. Um, and, uh, you know, I was on the phone with my parents. Uh, they were asking me, you know, they were staying out there for several months and they were asking me if they should come home, uh, because Northern Italy at the time was shutting down and, uh, we made a collective decision as a family that they would come home and they, they actually made one of the last flights back into JFK uh, mm-hmm. before they had to, before they were quarantining people at an army base. So they were able to actually fly in and go home. And my mom recounts a story of when they were on the plane and she asked the stewardess or the flight attendant, I'm sorry, it's to say, you know, like, mm-hmm. where are we going? And she couldn't tell her until they landed. They weren't sure what they were going to do with these passengers on the plane from Italy, and so I, I'll tell you though, at that time, it still fe- felt very distant. It didn't feel like it was something that was going to um, become what it was for for us in America, in New York, in the medical healthcare world, or as a nurse. It, it just wasn't even. Um, probably conceivable because we've never seen anything like that. It felt like it was over there. So that's kind of what was up. It, it wasn't very urgent. Um,
0: so I want to give the audience a, a glimpse into your life. First off, you've been doing, I see you've been nursing. How long I ICU how long?
2: Um, so I've been a nurse for 23 years. Um, I worked my way up through the chain of nursing, if you will. I've I've worked every level of nursing um, and many jobs. Uh, ICU has been, let's see, 12 or at least 14, 15 years I've been in the ICU.
0: From my perspective, having worked in healthcare all my life and with nurses, love nurses can't live without them. They make me look good. Um, (laughs) But people who do intensive care nursing like you, you're like the Navy SEALs of nursing. (laughs) You're, you're You're the real deal.
2: I knew that's where I always wanted to be, was an ICU nurse, right? So it's like, if you can do that, you can do anything. Um,
0: Absolutely.
2: And and specifically where Larry was admitted, where I worked, uh, I'm allowed to mention? Yes Yes. or no? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, Mount Sinai Morningside. In that particular ICU, what I loved about it was that we were a medical, surgical, trauma, Mm. Neuro trauma ICU, whereas a lot of hospitals have those ICUs broken up into um, separate units. Right? Uh, we did everything. So, so there, as a nurse, you were exposed to absolutely everything, from a, a bad train trauma to just a medical septic patient. Um, to head trauma. So, so there was a lot that uh, experience, I think, that nurses get over there, but it's the best. I mean, I couldn't imagine doing anything else.
0: So, you know, uh, like in the picture I want to paint is someone walks into your ICU first week of March. um, What do you see? You see a central nurse's station, a lot of busy people, everyone's in scrubs and, and stethoscopes. There are these uh, Glass enclosed units that are uh, for isolation and care, and and it's all serious. Uh, and there's this control. It's it's a really it's high tech. It's busy, but it's very controlled. There seems to be some order to it. And is that kind of what life was like before uh, it became apocalyptic?
2: Oh yeah. Um, so yeah, extremely controlled. So I'm not. I wasn't only just a staff nurse in the ICU where Larry was admitted, but I was the clinical leader, if you will, ANCC of the unit. So um, what that meant for me was that I was in charge of that order and control, (laughs) that clinical order and control. And and actually, um, yeah, I mean, you obviously had your days and you can never anticipate true emergencies. Um, And actually before COVID, you know just being a trauma unit in new york city we did yearly mass disaster drills really um, and they were they were um simulated obviously right but but as we got better at them over the years we had a great emergency uh director um and we would simulate these mass disaster drills just in preparation of you know a bombing or you know, God forbid, in 9 or whatever. And it was pretty intense. Um, and even that, you know, and I would, I would lead that. And I was like sweating through the, the through the, um, through the simulation, you know, those, those yearly simulations, because it was chaotic, but it was still controlled. Like it was still, there was some form of order. There was some form of like a command center and, who had vests on, so you knew who was running things. You know that that all was that all was practiced for a long time. But aside from that, yeah, I would say the ICU is a very well oiled machine. Um, and our first COVID patient that came up went into one of our negative pressure rooms. Um, which helps to filter the air out. Right. And so he, there was a COVID patient, but it, that was still very, very controlled. Like we had one patient in the glass isolation room and um, you know, I remember the nurse who went in and, and set them up and it was scary, but it was still very controlled.
0: Larry, let me, let me, let me, ask, ask, wait, 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 I'm still trying to set a, <laughs> set a picture here and I want you to get in next. When you were admitted, when Larry was admitted to the hospital in You know, New York City was the epicenter in the beginning. When he was admitted to the hospital in New York City, there were 23 deaths. When he was intubated two days later on 319, there were 67 deaths in New York City. Mm -hmm. By April 1st, it was over 2000. Mm -hmm. By May 1st, it was over 15,000. So Jessica, how long after you admitted Larry to the ICU did things get out of control? And what was going on? Just kind of recreate that for us. You um, <laughs> used to call that hell weeks of...
2: Yeah, it was the hell weeks. Um, uh, I would say days. It was days after Larry was admitted that things went, went crazy. And um, uh, the, the influx of admissions, the rapidness of deterioration of patients, um, not having enough isolation rooms, negative pressure rooms, right? We only had two in a 24-bed ICU. We only had two when that started.
1: Jess, I tell people I, I, I'm very lucky that I was the second patient because had I been two weeks later, I'd be in a hallway somewhere, maybe. You know, well, yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah,
2: I mean, we <laughs> filled up immediately after Larry was admitted. He was obviously um, significant for me because he was the first person that I I was in full PP and remember like going in to um, settle him and admit him. And I think I recount somewhere in all my conversations about this that I remember distinctively uh, for myself closing the door, the glass door of the room. Um, obviously I was in full head to toe PPE, but Larry at that time was not intubated. He, so, so essentially he was breathing on a a BiPAP machine, which forces air into the lung and forces air out. And so essentially he was aerosolizing this virus in the air that I was in the room. And it was the first time I remember thinking, Um, that I actually could get this, this not knowing what it was, and that I could die, right? Because I didn't know what it was. We didn't know what it was. Um, At the time Larry was admitted, I would say there was a palpable fear in the unit in terms of like, we didn't understand it. Uh, We didn't understand how fast, why patients were coming in so fast, why they were deteriorating so fast. Um, Even things simple, like, you know, picking up the phone without gloves at the nurse's station, you wondered, you know, am I going to get COVID that way? Like that's, that was the level of like uncertainty for us. Um, But, and, and Larry was the first time I remember feeling because our, our first COVID patient, I believe was intubated when he came up to us. Right, And so it's very different when you're dealing with someone that can talk and, like I said, aerosolizing this, this virus um, in the room and you've got a, a mask on. And at the time, too, I think, if I recall, I try not to think about it all too much, but if I can recall, um, I, I think there was a lot of mixed messaging from hospital administration at the time about how to protect ourselves. I remember, and, and this is not a knock to anybody because mm-hmm. I think we all just did the best we could. Um, But I remember a lot of nurses at the time putting masks on um, before it was recommended uh, globally to do that. And I remember being called to a huddle, if you will, by administration and them telling us that we should not wear masks because we were going to scare the patients. (laughs) We were going to scare people that like, know and so we were told not to wear masks and obviously like they the nurses got very upset and and whatever people just did what they wanted um but that was the messaging and then it was like a couple days later and they were like oh well we don't have enough masks you can wear bandanas or something like around like please and then and then i think everyone caught on real quick about the fact that like you know we were gonna die (laughs) so so they wanted to give us masks but um, it's like I mean, the air raid
1: drills when we were kids right you know, it was climb it was, into your desk climb under your desk you'll be fine <laughs> no
2: it was it was an unreal surreal kind of unfolding and um I liken it to like you know a war it, it was just it, it it was a bomb that went off immediately and it was pure chaos it was just pure chaos it, it was it was just patients deteriorating um and i would say in hindsight looking back the first wave of covid was really only the time that that was significant i would say between march and what like somewhere mid-summer that was the first wave was was sustained that way the second one was a little different obviously we had more knowledge and we were dealing with it for a while but that first wave I don't know if I can even find English words <laughs> to to well, really describe what happened.
0: So, I'm a third party calling every day every other day to find out about Larry and I before I ever spoke to Jessica for five or six phone calls I spoke to other people and they it was an air raid, a real air raid. It was it was fear, apprehension, exhaustion. Everybody sounded like they were uh, you know, uh, victims of war themselves. And um which made me want to talk to them like, how are you? What are you doing? Are you sleeping? Yeah. Are you, you know, because obviously they're under, undergoing a lot. And then one day I call and I get the head nurse, Jessica, and it's like, hey, Dr. Kush, how are you doing? What can I do for you today? It's like, what the <laughs> hell is going on here? What is wrong with the? Either she's nuts, oblivious, <laughs> or she is like General Patton. Well, uh, I figured that out real quick. Um, and, and, and really what happened soon after was I, I called to tell Jessica, they're going to deliver some pizza and some yeah. ice cream later on. She said, oh, Dr. Kush, you don't have to do that. And I said, no, I have to do this because if you knew Larry Kelly, she said, oh, no, I know Larry Kelly. I admitted him. So you admitted him and there was a conversation and all as I know of the conversation is that you described him as being fit and tame. Oh,
2: God. This is going to come back to haunt me the rest of my, for life. my
0: age. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. For you. <laughs> Tell me what that's was. I was very
2: emotional at the time, okay? <laughs> all
0: right. So I want to hear each of your versions of what that... Give me a minute on what that conversation was when you were admitting.
2: Oh, Jesus. I mean, God, sweet Jesus. Nobody lets me live this down. Okay, so... <laughs> All right. Can I put this in context? Because Larry likes to take it out of context. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Here's why I said that. And and actually, I'm going to tell you a little story behind it. Um, so Larry comes in. And I think, Larry, you just came back from Florida on a, from a vacation. So you were tan. <laughs> um, I will say fit for your age. <laughs> I think that's how I described you let me clarify um you did not appear to be somebody that was morbidly obese that had a lot of comorbidities whether you did or not i didn't know versus you know things like maybe diabetes or some other medical i'm just saying from visual right you came in and you looked you you looked healthy right and um i think why that incredibly sexy OK, that and was not in
1: first.
0: the chart,
2: not in the chart, Mm-mm. not in the chart. Um, however, <laughs> <not my> chart. <laughs> yeah, I did not write that to the president. Um, but I I <laughs> I, um, I seriously I, I I why it was significant, even though Larry likes to make fun of that all the time. It's significant because of how fast he deteriorated in front of my eyes. With COVID, right? It wasn't like, you know, at the time, I think we were hearing like, oh, if you have comorbidities, if you have lung problems, if you can't breathe, if you already have immunosuppression or these other things, you're at high risk. Well, Larry didn't look like that to me when he came in. And Mm -hmm. so when he came in and then to see him, what I call pretty much half dead in two days, um, stuck with me. And actually, you know, I wrote that in a letter to the president of the hospital and hospital leadership. And I don't remember even why now I wrote that. <laughs> I don't remember when you know, I wrote it or why I wrote it.
1: You um, know, that came up on my timeline a couple of weeks I ago. I don't
2: remember why I did that, but but it was significant because it was the first time it was like, okay, this is not the picture of what they're telling us the person who gets COVID looks like A. B, um, this person, for all intents and purposes, who doesn't have a lot of comorbidities, is literally dying in front of my eyes. Right. Um, but our introduction was really just, I was in my internal, probably, world feeling a lot of fear, but still doing my job, which you get to know how to do as a trauma nurse, you just put the the thing on. And Larry, um, no, getting to know him now, and his humor, and what he's about, was nothing like that. When I met him, you were still kind of, you know, trying to be jovial, but there was a lot of fear. There was a lot of like, and I remember, you know, like uh, just you asking me if you, if I was going to help you breathe and telling you that I was going to take your blood. And I think it was even during that time you had gotten a call while I was with you that your daughter had COVID. Right. Like I was standing in the room when you got that phone call and and you just changed, like immediately changed um, everything. It just changed. And and, um, yeah, I mean, it was it was intense. And I think it was intense because you were the first person that really, in my view, was not the picture of what we were getting on the news, if you will. And I was like, how did this happen? Like, how is this happening? It was it was it was surreal.
0: Larry, right. what do you remember the conversation when you were admitted, when she's taking you in, asking you those medical questions?
1: I, I, I think I told this to Jess uh, months and months later. But, uh, you know, I, when I was in rehab, look, just jumped to there when I was lying on my back and I was, couldn't move from the neck down is when George Floyd was killed oh, on yeah. TV. And, mm-hmm. uh, I can't breathe became like a catchphrase. And I was lying there in rehab going, oh, that's exactly what I said. But, you know, George Floyd ran into who he ran into and I ran into Jessica. And I remember being in rehab, like getting very emotional that, uh, I was lucky enough to run into somebody who helped me breathe Mm -hmm. instead of, you know, George Floyd. But, uh, yeah, I I that's Jack, it was a hard time. Everything happened so fast. I yeah. was, you know, when they were there was all these doctors in attendance over the top of me, they're gonna vent me, they're gonna vent you. I don't even know what that means. I don't even know. I'm terrified. And she's right, I was I was terrified. But the hardest part for me, and I I I I talked to a lot of patients that have had open heart surgery, blah, blah, blah. I talked to a lot of people. People tell me their health problems now, like I have some sort of magic bullet, but the uh but to give myself over to the professionals was really hard for me was really to to say, "I really hope you guys know what the hell you're doing and just to go okay you can you can put me out and but that's so hard, and for me because i you know, I'm I sort of like to, you know,
0: keep control of my life.
2: You're a control freak? No. <laughs> <Yeah. Not you. laughs>
0: so Jessica, you took him in. He went on BIPAP. You left. Would you say he was stable or unstable at that moment?
2: Yeah, um, he was sick. Obviously, uh prior to me leaving, he required BIPAP. And for people that don't understand what that is, we'll just call it like an uh, an external kind of um, intubation, if you will. It, it, it's supporting your breathing. It's the last line, if you will, before you get an airway put down your tube. So he was he was struggling to breathe, and he required that. Uh, I, if I recall, um, I, I feel like the hemodynamics were stable, mm-hmm. um, but but there was some labored accessory muscle breathing. Um, that was concerning enough. Um,
0: So he's working hard at breathing. You go home, you're off for two, you come back two days later. Well, I
2: remember prior to me leaving. And again, you have to remember that I never had one specific patient because I was running the clinical side of the ICU. So if there were 24 rooms, I was in 24 rooms. Mm -hmm. I was in 24 rooms, right? And so I was making my rounds before I was leaving and he had glass doors and I remember going in and I'm sorry, I didn't go in. I I stood outside the room and I gave him like a thumbs up. Like, you okay? He had your phone. He had his phone, which you can't talk on the phone when you're on BiPAP. Okay. But whatever. He had his phone (laughs) and he was in the room and he was settled at that point. Yes. And I went home. I was off for two days, which I'll just give you, um, you know, I I don't I don't remember now if it was just right before I want to say maybe right after that when I had two days off, I was in every single day for at least six, seven days straight like I was going in on my days off. Um, I didn't have a lot of time off after that but but yeah, I went home and I came back and I as a charge nurse, you get report on the whole floor so I got report, you know, you walk around to every room and I got report and I was stunned to say the least when i came back to see the condition that larry was in i, I was speechless
1: yeah
2: and it was probably at that time that i was like I, I think well i don't think i remember i know saying to myself like i can't curse on this podcast right so i'll, I'll be careful um what is COVID? what yeah. is this what what is this because he looked like you know one of my patients who had been septic for four weeks who we couldn't you know I mean sepsis is obviously lethal right and but but usually it's like you, you watch the it's not this fast and within two days of me coming back he was intubated on multiple um life-saving drips and um, I was shocked
0: so this is you quickly figure out this is a uncontrollable, unknown monster. What what happens internally in the ICU and the staff? How do you guys get it together and know what your marching orders are for tomorrow?
2: We didn't. We didn't. And, and, and I'm, I'm glad I told you about our mass casualty drills, because I would say to people that would listen, <laughs> whoever was listening at the time, that this was, you know, with a mass casualty incident, right? Or when you get you're preparing for something um, like that in the hospital, it ends, it ends, right? Like you have a, a short duration of influx and chaos and whatever, but it's over. Right. And um, Good lunch. this was a sustained mass casualty, casualty incident for, I think that's why I said the eight weeks were hell weeks for about two months straight like a non-stop mass casualty incident and and by that i mean the number of admissions the number of admissions that were deteriorating so quickly and i'm talking ages between 40 and up not 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 your just your comorbidity elderly patients it was 40 year olds no comorbidities just unexplainable we didn't have any rhyme or reason why room a wasn't surviving and room B was we couldn't figure that out we didn't know it was just it was mayhem and at the time um we were simultaneously aside from from what we were doing the hospital was trying to figure out how do I get supplies in we were changing rooms so that every single room was converted to a negative pressure room you can imagine that (laughs) I mean that that Um, alone is is unbelievable. That was simultaneously happening. Um, It was, do we have enough pumps? Where do we put these pumps? Nurses were terrified to go into the room, but there was a duty and a call to receive these patients that came up. Um, Any order or control that we had was out the window. And I think it was just natural instinct. And I think it was during that time that all hierarchy kind of just dissolved there was no like oh you're the chief trauma surgeon (laughs) oh you're the chief neurosurgeon Uh -uh. no it was like we are healthcare workers and we are all going to figure this out together and nurse doctor uh nursing attendant housekeeper you know, all these it didn't matter. It was like, if you're a hand, if you're a body, if you have a thought, if you have whatever, we are collectively going to just figure this out. It, it was chaos. And I remember walking through, we have double doors to the ICU. There's no glass. And when you, you open the doors, they open automatically. And I remember walking in, and I think it's on the film because I wore a GoPro. You just see equipment and like just massive pumps and equipment, everything all over the place. And you see just people running. So my shifts consisted of just like 14 plus hours straight of running.
0: Yeah. Tell, tell about the garbage.
2: <laughs> so, um, at that time, obviously all elective surgery stopped. So, um, we weren't doing all that stuff. So if you were a physician of any kind, um, a lot of them were taking over attending roles, right in the in the ICU, because the patients were just too much for one medicine attending to handle. So um, there was a neurosurgeon. <laughs> I'm going to give him a shout out, actually, Dr. Neo, who was one of my favorites. He was young and just really smart and very kind to the nurses. But he was in a room. He was one of the medical attendings now, right? Because he wasn't operating. Uh, and so he was covering patients in the medical surgical ICU and he was in a room and I remember, I remember the room, it was in the surgical ICU and the garbage was overflowing. And so, you know, at that time we were so aware of like, where do we put our PPE and dotting and doffing and all this stuff. It was just a lot. And he was in there and I knocked on the glass door (laughs) and I pointed to the garbage and I said, change the garbage. We have nowhere to change our PPE, change the garbage. And he looked at me <laughs> and he did it. He changed the garbage, took the garbage out. He put the new bag in, you know, um, without question, he did it. And like that, that's the kind of level of hierarchy breakdown there was, um, you know, and he, he knew how significant that was for us. Cause we had to go in the room and like have somewhere to put this PPE, but he, um, he changed the garbage, this, you know, great neurosurgeon that he was. So you know, I always that
1: suggest guy. that, uh, you know, my, <laughs> my whole experience, I, my, my respect for nurses and even people under you, yeah. the aides that attended me.
2: Yeah.
1: what it they did, They do the toughest jobs. And I mean, I, yeah. they had to attend everything to me and the, uh, it's it, they don't get. I was going back to me liking to be in control. I don't like people having to wait on me, you know. Um, and so that was really hard for me. And it, but I was a good patient. I was told because I was always grateful and thank you. I'm so sorry you have to do that, you know. The uh, um, but what you guys what you guys do all through is it's it's just and especially during COVID. Uh, yeah. and, I,
2: and I think about actually you bring that up and and just a shout out quickly to all those people who are nursing attendants and and the housekeepers and all those people, you know, obviously the attention was on healthcare professionals, but think about how many of them had to go in those rooms and also didn't know what was going on. And they weren't taking care of the patients, but they were facing every fear that we were facing. And um, and they did it you know, we all, it was a team. It was just a team. It was a team across the board. There wasn't nurse, doctor, a housekeeper. It was just, we were there to fight and, and look, some nurses were terrified and and didn't want to do it and couldn't do it. And and I don't judge that. I mean, there were Mm -hmm. other, some of them had medical conditions or I have friends at the time who are my very, very close nurse friends. So I'm still friends with today. I, I won't tell you the name of our group on text message, but they know who they are, and, you, <laughs> and um, and and they have brand new babies. They were breastfeeding in the hospital, and going home to an infant, and coming in every day and facing this and freaking out. I mean, we would fight over. You know, it's funny. I, I'll tell this one story quickly. Can I say her name? Yes. I mean, she oh, would first name, first name, first name, first name. First name. Yeah. All right. So, so, so we have a, there's about seven of us. We're in this um, group called the bitches. Okay. It's, it's, it's all nurses. It's all ICU nurses. And they're running the
0: hospital. Don't you worry.
2: Yeah. And we, and we, but wait a minute, we, we started this group. It saved my life during COVID because it was in this group that we were able to vent and cry and um, be sad and be angry about what was happening and all this stuff and and everybody was super supportive um and there were two nurses in that group i think that had left our icu but still part of our group who weren't living what we were living but um julia you know they she she organized how to get us ppe and raised like thousands of dollars for a food fund and an uber fund for all the nurses in the icu like this was happening behind the scenes Mm. You know, like that was my group and we're still very, very, very close. And so we were, it was like a venting session and and those of us living it were, were horrified. And those of us, them who were not, but trying to support us were amazing. And that's how they helped. And so Jenna had just had a baby and she was breastfeeding her and Beth. They were two nurses who just had babies. And I remember because I was the clinical leader, I like to say that of the unit, (laughs) um, she was pissed off because the gowns, they had changed the gowns at that time and not on purpose. I think the supply was just out. Right. And they were really like permeable, if you will, they weren't like our other gowns. And she was scared and she was, and and it translated into anger Mm. at me. (laughs) Like, she started yelling at me in the hallway about the gown quality, right? The, the, the PPE. And, and I was like yelling back. going I'm like, I don't control this. Like I can't help this. And I remember Dr. Wedderburn who, you know, who did your surgery, uh, kind of got in the middle of the two of us. And, 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 you know, I said here, you deal with her <laughs> because she's yelling at me and I have no control and he did. Um, but it was that kind of like intense environment that it was like, I don't know who to yell at. This is unacceptable. I'm scared. This is not enough. And like, you just yelled at anyone that was around you. And I, I, I often say during that time, there was no filter. There was no professional filter anymore. Like, you know, if you're in a professional setting, it's like, Gone are the 1950s, 60s, Okay, doctor, would you like to sit down? Like, no, we never did that. But I'm saying, like, you know, gone are the days of where, like, oh, can you get this blood or do you have time? It was like, dude, change the garbage, give me the drip, hurry up! Like, everyone was yelling at each other, and you didn't take it personal.
1: Jess, you you <laughs> earlier you you made the analogy of uh, being in war, and I I, I say constantly that. A uh, global pandemic is exactly what what you talk about. We've seen so many movies, and we've talked to so many Vietnam vets who have a hard time talking about what they went through. That you needed that support group. It's like vets getting together with other vets and Correct. having a drink. How yeah. many wall was your gathering
2: place? Yes, it was. How <laughs> many was your
1: gathering? Yeah. The PTOH, <laughs> yeah, you know. The uh, it and, and I understand it too because it's uh, I why Jack and I are doing this podcast is you know, Miracle Larry has a story, but everybody does. And COVID, I think the way to get through what we went through is to talk about it, is to talk it out and just it's and true,
2: a- but I, I find that, um. You're not wrong, but I find that you can't talk about it with people unless they understand what it was. It's very hard to explain to somebody who doesn't understand what it was like. And so so that's why I think our bitches group, ICU nurses, is still intact. And and ironically, we all left the ICU, not not, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but we all left that ICU. We have all done the same. I'm still in the ICU and a couple of them are, but, and some for better doing awesome things, CRNAs, whatever, but we're still together. And I mm-hmm. think it's because, and, and actually I'll say during the second wave, I'm jumping ahead a little bit. <laughs> we had a little bit of lull in between the first and second, like things calmed down. And then we have like a, a, a surge again. And I'll never forget Adalie, who's now the ANCC. In the ICU where you were, she's my dear friend. She's killing it over there and, and she's in our bitches group. She looked, at, <laughs> she looked at me and said, all she said was this, this feels like March. Mm. And that's all she had Very. to say to me for me to understand what she meant. Now, if you say that to anybody else, they would not understand what that means Mm-hmm. And I looked at her and I said, I know. And it wasn't as bad as March. It was bad. It was not as bad as March. But all she had to do was look at me and said, this feels like March.
0: Jessica, um, <laughs> I listened to all your your podcasts and your many videos and the documentaries that you were involved in. They're wildly inspirational. And to, so always a treat to talk to you. But the one thing I got from those was your line of of calm through chaos. and and it was chaos. And the first six months, there were 2,000 healthcare workers who died from COVID. Yeah. How, did you, how did you deal with that as far as a home life and going home and, and hugging your kids and, and that sort of thing? What did you, you
2: do? So, I mean, I, I think I'm a little different than a lot of people. So I don't want to speak for everybody on this because I think everybody handled it differently in their personal lives. Uh, for myself, nursing has always been a calling Um, there was no question in my mind. It was like a burning building, right? The hospital was the burning building. And I felt like I needed to run there. That was just me. I can't speak Mm -hmm. for everyone. But that was just my, I felt like I needed to run there. Knowing that I had a home, but I knew what my calling was, right? And so at the time of March, actually, my husband, Paul, uh, got covid Oh no. Right around the time Larry had it. Um, and he was home and I remember he was working and he didn't feel good. And I, we, he bought us, I said, go buy a thermometer at the, <laughs> the deli or whatever. And, and he bought a thermometer and he was taking his temperature every hour and, um, calling me. And, and finally when it hit, like, I think it was hundred point four or something, I think maybe it was one one I don't remember, but we both made a decision, you gotta get out of there because we didn't want to take the risk of like infecting anybody. And so he came home and obviously we got him tested and he was positive and um, he was quarantined to our bedroom. And Maya, uh, what was she, 10, 11 at the time, 10 maybe, Francesca, our daughter, uh, had to take care of him because I went to the hospital. And I couldn't see myself sitting home, but at the same time, you know, she, I have a picture somewhere of her like doing the dishes on a chair. She's standing on a chair, like doing the dishes and like my giving daddy food through the door and and he and I would FaceTime um, and I got a pull socks him on his finger. And I wanted to see what his oxygen was. And and I had a number in my head when I would get him to the hospital if I had to, but I told him otherwise he wasn't coming to the hospital. So like that was simultaneously happening when it broke out, but there was no way that I felt like I couldn't be at the hospital at the same time. So I was kind of doing both.
1: Yes. I, 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 you know, my head's a little different in terms of you said, you know, it's hard to talk about it. Um, you know, all those people banging pots and giving all that respect to healthcare workers. And then six months later, it's like, let's move on. And uh, I, I can't do that. I can't do that. I can't, you know, I, I joke, I'm sort of like Ellie Wiesel with the Holocaust. You know, I I there's a part of me that if we don't learn from what happened, it's going to happen again, that old oh, adage. And uh, I, you know, I, I can't talk. I can't even listen to somebody badmouth their doctor. I can't, I can't sit next to somebody who says, ah, my doctor doesn't know what he's doing. I can't, I can't <laughs> listen. I walk away. I just, you know um, what, 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 what doctors and you guys put in every day and it's only to save lives is uh it, is, it should never be forgotten. You guys- yeah.
2: and, and actually, this is a good segue into just mentioning that during that time, during those first eight hell weeks, a, a colleague of ours died, two, actually. Um, one at our sister hospital in uh, Mount Sinai West. And um, our x-ray technician died. And that that one was hard. So, so when the nurse, died he was a manager at mount sinai west and we got word that he died from covid and he was helping staff obviously um we took a moment of silence I, we gathered everybody in the middle and we told them what happened and and that i had nurses who had panic attacks during the huddle who had to leave the unit um they were terrified and obviously we felt that it became like so real like like i could die from this but then we had um uh ooh an x-ray tech who worked in our unit and um he was older and probably didn't understand the need for proper PPE he just never there were a lot of things Mm. he didn't understand and uh the, the day before he left the ICU I called his manager and I said um he shouldn't be in the ICU it's not safe and uh, so got- For the
0: audience, the, an x-ray tech to an, an ICU nurse is a little bit like an executive who has a secretary outside his door. I mean, arm in arm, you're together every day. You're personal friends, you're work friends, yeah. you're oh, in yeah. the trenches together. So that kind of loss had to be shocking. Yeah.
2: yeah I mean, he, was, he never reported to work and someone checked on him and he died.
0: So let's go quickly if we can. We're going to go fast forward a few weeks. Larry's not doing good. You know, well, we got to say, you know, just you and your team, were one of the first to give steroids. Larry got steroids. You're one of the first to give Actemra, Tocilizumab, an IL-6 inhibitor. You were and one per- of the first to actually flip him. Yeah. Describe what that proning and flipping is. Can, can,
1: can I say something before she describes that? Yeah, I, 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 I give you lots of kudos for the proning, because I know that you were a big advocate. Prone them, prone them
2: <laughs> Well, prone here's the deal. Um, I, I'm not going to belabor this point, but um, so, oh, how do, Jack, how do I even go through this? It's like. Um,
0: Start with just the decision. You were an expert at it. You had published on it. You taught right. other people so, how to do
2: so, it. So, like, let's be honest, proning is not invented by Mount Sinai. It's been around since the 1970s, right? Like, right, it's, right. It's, it's a long, it's a long standing thing. Um, it's had its place in medicine and then lost its place and had its place and lost its place, right? And so proning is essentially just flipping someone onto their, their belly because the, the thought is that they get more oxygenation to those, those alveoli, which is where your gas exchange takes place. That's the medical part. So, um, ironically, about a year and a half earlier, uh, our team in Mount Sinai Morning Side ICU shout out to us because we really did a great job. We did simulation and we developed this whole policy, and it was published and it was it was um, international nursing magazine and it was it was a national talk and and our team did a wonderful job creating a policy around how to prone critically ill patients, and we're talking about patients that are not stable. Have airways are hemodynamically not safe. There's a lot that can go wrong. So there's a lot into it. And um, oh, I want to tell a story, but it's so inappropriate. So I'm not going to do that. Um, so, <laughs> um,
1: so <laughs> Stop That's okay. i sorry.
2: I have a little bit of Larry Kelly in me. Is it so, about me? No, no, no. Okay, no, good. No, I, so, I was going to so, say, go
1: ahead. No, no,
2: no, no. <laughs> um, I, I digress. So, anyway, uh, so Larry, the, the day I came back, I'll never forget this. So he had the, there are certain reasons why you flip a patient, right? Poor oxygenation. Uh, we can't ventilate or oxygenate them. We're doing everything we can. We are, we're out of moves essentially, right? You have an airway already. What are we going to do? And I remember sitting with Dr. Gopal. He was an ICU attending, uh, Dr. Mohanraj, who everyone knows an ICU attending, Dr. Shapiro who was our medical director. And sitting in like a little huddle and I was the nurse and we were sitting there together talking about what we were going to do with Larry because he was on like I think uh, 90, 80, 100% of oxygen already on, the, on a ventilator and, and his blood gases weren't good and we didn't know what to do. And, but he didn't meet all the criteria I think at the time to prone somebody because we were still going off different, we didn't know what COVID was, there was no criteria for COVID. So we were going off different criteria. And we decided at that moment not to prone him. We had a, we had like a little huddle about, should we do it? Shouldn't we do it? Should we do it? Like it was all discussion. We didn't do it. And then I think you got worse and I went home. And when I came back, you were actually proned. You were flipped on your belly. And, um, and, and that saved a lot of people's lives in the ICU. And I'm just really proud of our team, Uh, because we were ahead of the curve. Uh, We were prepared to do this intervention um, because we had practiced it. We had worked on it. We had a policy. And in fact, we were like, you know, the sounding board for a lot of um, people across the country. As a result, I was getting calls Mm. from Colorado, California, Florida, nurses calling me saying, teach me how to prone Mm. quickly over the phone. and I was walking them through how to do this on the phone uh, because they had never done prone. And, and to people who are in medicine, I hate this because they disregard prone. I'm like, oh, it's no big deal. Like ORs, they do it all the time. Yeah, but that patient's hemodynamically freaking stable. I'm talking about a patient who is about to die <laughs> or morbidly obese on multiple hemodynamic drips with an airway and we're trying to flip them. Right, and so with lines and whatever, and so it just it it was pretty amazing. But we quickly adapted that uh, process, and I think it saved a lot of people.
1: Uh, believe Jack, it or Jack, let me just. I, I, there's always a need in me to because uh, we talk about very difficult and painful stuff. To you know, I I do believe a part of my survival. Is my sense of humor and -hmm. the way I see the world. But I just have to jump to when I went back to visit that day, which to this day is still one of the most emotional days of my life. But Dr. Jennifer Fung, when she said to Mr. Kelly, she goes, I was part of your proning team. Can I ask you a question? I said, sure. She goes, what's the significance of your tattoos on your back? (laughs) Just I'll never forget that. that was the question she wanted to ask. She, said, to they knew they had meaning. she knew they had meaning. She just wanted to
0: J- Jessica. You saw the tattoos. What's the tattoos on his back?
2: It's poker cards. Right? <laughs> and, and I thought, and that's when I was like, oh, this guy's cool, you know? And I, I remember that. Yeah. He has, he has poker cards on his back. <laughs> so the,
0: this power this podcast is called The Miracle It's this could be. This could be called the Lucky Larry podcast because luck is when preparation meets opportunity. That's Jessica.
2: Jack, remind me when we're off video to tell you of a story I want to tell that I can't tell on here. All right. All right.
0: Jess, <laughs> yes, you have to come back. Please, you have to come back. I Wait, think no, we we got to a... end with just one more. One, oh, no, we, 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 we can end at this point. Uh, well, and we'll come back in the next episode and we'll talk about reunions and yeah. how these guys get together after Larry. Mm-hmm wakes up and walks out of the hospital. So, but Larry, we just had a reunion. You just got 50 year reunion. You, what was that like meeting all your classmates? And there were hundreds of them, each of whom knew your story and were moved by it back then. What was it like to meet them now this weekend? Jack,
1: it was, (laughs) it was, my whole life at certain points is very surreal. Um, that I'm 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 still not totally convinced I'm not dead.
0: Um <laughs> I you know,
1: this I, I always have that big question mark because it it the it was weird, Jack. I the love that was shown was just uh it was overwhelming. And uh you know, I you know, I it, it it's almost like I teased Jan, who wrote the article for the Times, that I'm the only person. I know who has read their obituary who's still alive and uh, and all the things people wrote about me on, on uh, Facebook and other venues. And uh, but because they all thought I was dead. <laughs> so they all said good stuff, you know, so I, I read this stuff. And they I, were oh, lying. Was oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> we're, so...
0: <laughs> we're selective,
1: but, but <laughs> going going back to the people that have known me since like you, Jack, since kindergarten, um, it, it's it's just You know, it's beyond words. It's beyond words. It's uh, yeah, um, that it it was it was. We'll, we'll we'll talk about it again when I can put it in words. I didn't expect this question yeah. at the end of this. You know, this there's a lot of thoughts that are running around my head all, all right. the time, and uh, yeah. I, I just want to say one light note. Jess earlier talked about early times of COVID grabbing the phone and not knowing if you were going to get it from the phone. Well, when I was conscious and, and at the third spot, before I went into rehab, I was sent downtown, I was shipped around, you know, I was sent downtown to this new unit. And uh, yeah, uh I had lost my Movado watch, my wallet with all my credit cards, my 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 diamond earring my my uh everything my cell phone and all my clothes and i you thought, sound like a gigolo but go ahead. i i i i thought i thought that son of a bitch jessica stole my she she stole my stuff she, stole my stuff. she didn't I think said, you were gonna I said, live i, I oh, found no. out later i was so early they burned it all
2: oh really i didn't even yeah.
1: know that yeah they burned it all. The stuff Get that was the coming, hell
2: out of here. I didn't even because know. Because they didn't it. know how it
1: spread. I was Holy early. They didn't know how it spread. I didn't so know everybody's, that. Everybody's belongings that yeah. came in. I'm thinking, those nurses, they got my model watch. They got my soap. You watch. were a
2: gigolo. <laughs>
0: well, indescribable is our guest, Jessica Ottenero. <laughs> Jessica, thank you for taking the time. Um, yeah. And recanting uh, this great history together. So, will you
1: come back? Maybe.
0: Okay. Yeah, maybe we, <laughs> yeah. we have to talk to her agent. All right, we're we'll going. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yes, you can
2: do right. that. Bye,
0: Bye everyone. Right, Jess. Bye, Jess. Love you.
2: Love you. <laughs>